2: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Linshan Jiang. Today, I'm so delighted to have Dr. Joseph He with us here on air. Dr. He, would you like to say hi to the listeners? Hello, everyone. Dr. He is Assistant Professor of History at Albion College and Center Associate at the libertho Rago Center for Chinese Studies, University of Michigan. In addition to his current book, Dr. He is the co-editor of War and Occupation in China, The Letters of an American Missionary from Hangzhou, 1937-1938. to I first met Dr. He in a virtual academic conference in 2021, and we were in the same panel entitled Travel, Diaspora, and Cartography of East Asia. I was amazed by his presentation entitled The Sea of Glass, Japan as Mediatory Space for China-Based American Missionaries. Especially the rich visual sources that he showed to us. Since I'm a scholar researching women's war experience and memory of the Second Sino-Japanese War, I truly felt that Dr. Huss' research spoke to me. After the conference, I could not wait to check out more about Dr. Huss' research and found a lot of interesting information through his personal website. I also noticed that his first monograph, Developing Mission Photography, Filmmaking, and American Missionaries in More than China will be published soon by Cornell University Press. That's why I sent the invitation to Dr. He, and he generously agreed to talk about his book with me through the New Books Network. Before discussing with Dr. He about his experience of research and writing, let me offer the listeners a short overview of the book, Developing Mission, Photography, Filmmaking, and American Missionaries in More Than China. This book offers a transnational cultural history of U.S. and Chinese communities framed by missionary lenses through time and space, tracing the lives and afterlives of images, cameras, and visual imaginations from before the second sino Japanese war through the first years of the People's Republic of China. The book is divided into five chapters. It follows a chronological order of Chinese history during the first half of the 20th century. And at the same time, explores specific locales. Today, instead of following the historical trajectory, I would like to start by discussing your research experience and the major themes in your research. So Dr. He, what motivates you to do this whole research? Why do you choose to focus on camera and also missionary? And how do they develop into the visual modernity and missionary modernity you propose in the book?
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. And these are excellent questions. So to answer, I guess to answer these in two parts, I think about how cameras bear on historical experience. So how do cameras say something and do something in historical experience? And at the same time, I was thinking about how missionaries and visual technologies alike embody a kind of mediation. Now, cameras mediate between subject, maker, and audience, and missionaries mediate between God and people, culture and society, and in this case, between China and the United States. So as I put these two pieces together, I realize that there's an untold story here. The question of what do missionaries make images of and how they make images and how this kind of experience and visual practice influences history and historical experience so on the second couple of questions you asked here i decided to think about what this experience of making images as missionaries and moving between these different worlds the worlds of china the united states had something to do with modernity so what does it mean to see in a modern manner And specifically, what are missionaries doing in the 20th century that embodies a new kind of what I call missionary modernity, where missionaries are thinking about themselves in relation to the world in new ways compared to prior kinds of Christian activity, prior kinds of missions. There's a great example from 1929 in which a missionary magazine in China publishes an article entitled The Modern Significance of the Missionary. So they are self-reflective. These missionaries in China in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and early 50s are thinking about themselves, and they quote in this article, being citizens of the world. That they are no longer just bringing a kind of new thought or religion to China. I mean, they are doing that, but they're seeing it in a new way of moving between worlds, Of belonging to China instead of simply bringing something to China. And in the midst of this, they're considering how they might display their identities and how they might think about their presence in a local environment through modern lenses. Through the technologies of the camera, still photography and filmmaking, And these identities and imaginations merge in the significance of the modern missionary in China.
2: Yeah, that's so fascinating. I really like the idea of mediation. It's quite common to hear mediation in photography, but it's actually a very new idea, at least for me, because I know pretty little about the whole Christianity, that it's also another mediation. And of course, you actually touch upon the second question that I want to talk about, which is the virtual modernity and missionary modernity we're talking about just now. And how do they speak to the Christian internationalism you mentioned in the book and also the Sino US cross cultural encounters that you also mentioned in your talk just now? And also, you talked so much in your book.
1: Great. So, if images move and missionaries move, they're also at the same time embedded in these uh, environments and places and historical changes in China. So there's this overlapping connection between the movement of missionaries, the movement of visual technologies and images, but also belonging to places. So back to the question of mediation, I love to think about these images, um, these identities as embodying a kind of in-betweenness. And if we have this in-betweenness, We connected to these other ideas that missionaries are considering, and also experiencing at this time, the idea of Christian internationalism, that missionaries are considering the kinds of work that they do to belong to a wider global perspective. And some of these perspectives may be political, they may be bridging boundaries between countries, acting as informal diplomats in a way that's not the same as formal diplomacy, but also living between worlds and missionaries coming from the United States and then spending years and years, sometimes many decades in China um, and living these kinds of cross-cultural encounters. So the question I wanted to answer with this this, uh, work and these connections between visual modernity, missionary modernity, Christian internationalism, and cross-cultural encounters, the question I had in mind was, what do images and visual technologies do in pushing the boundaries of the missionary enterprise? And what happens when images and visual practices go beyond the boundaries of strictly mission or religious settings. And I'll share a couple more examples later on in this conversation about what happens when missionary images leave the missionary enterprise. But I feel like these kinds of perspectives all connect in some way to embody a transnational experience.
2: Yeah, again, that's so fascinating, especially this idea of in-betweenness, because I think maybe people who are doing that particular period when people are encountering each other so much in this globalization will definitely think about this particular question. And me too, who is doing the second sino Japanese war. And again, it's in this war setting that people are also meeting each other. And at the same time, they have very complicated emotions going on in their mind. And you were also talking about this, I think, in your war chapter that somehow the American missionaries is in between the Chinese and Japanese and how they are dealing with both of them. They may have their own national ideologies, but at the same time, they embody some kind of internationalism in this whole process. And I really love that particular historical description. So as I'm talking about this, there's one thing that's really embedded in your book, as you mentioned just now, that is the whole chain of photography and filmmaking as well. And I love that so much because personally, I also love photography. And then I somehow know something about the visual technologies, but not so much. And also, I sometimes feel... Struggling, like, oh, I'm only an amateur, but there are all those professional photographers. But you were talking about this idea of vernacular photographers and would like to know more about the tension between the so called vernacular and also the professional. And then, after the photographs and also the films were made, there will be the circulation and reception. And then there's also preservation. And it's so much interacting with the whole world, the audience and all the other people involved in it. So I, I would love to hear you sharing more about all the stories in the chain of photography and also filmmaking.
1: Great, and I'm glad you're thinking about this because for many historians and also many of us who consider images in history, what we tend to look at is the finished product or some version of that product. We have an image, and often we take it at face value, like this image illustrates X, Y, and Z, and now we move on. But in history, images are part of a process, the process of creation, the process of circulation, and the process of reception. So in thinking about this, I love to think about, uh, for example, how missionaries who are arriving in China for the first time have cameras with them, and how they might think about themselves differently or see this new world differently if they have to think about what it means to make an image. You have to take out your camera, you have to know where you are, you have to know these technical settings, you are perhaps practicing Chinese for the first time, maybe you're, you're speaking terribly and you're trying to communicate with the people who are in front of you. So all of that is wrapped up in the moment of how do I make an image of the new world that I'm going into. And many of these images, uh, at least in the example I just mentioned, are private images. They're images that you will take for personal use for your family. They're not necessarily in the moment of their creation destined to enter the public. So this is a private type of image making. And um, as you just mentioned earlier, it's vernacular. These missionaries are not professionals for the most part. They do not make a living from making their images, and they're perhaps having fun with these technologies. And we do this all the time. We make images when we travel, when we go places, or we encounter new peoples. The experience of making an image is fraught with all of these anxieties and questions and interests, and the missionaries share in that. Now. The other questions here about photographer filmmaking and circulation this goes back to the question of what happens when missionary images leave the missionary enterprise. Uh, in uh, the fourth chapter of my book, I discuss uh, a missionary filmmaker, John McGee, who is in Nanjing during the uh, events of the Nanjing Massacre. And he is able to use his movie camera to produce these graphic documentary films of atrocities that are happening on the ground. And he's able to do that because he is, number one, a missionary. He's been there for many, many years. He has familiarity with the environment. He speaks Chinese. And he has a camera. And he has a highly advanced movie camera to enable him to make these images. But subsequently, what happens with the reception? The images, these films are smuggled out of China they go to other places in Europe, they, in the United States. They are spliced into uh, newsreels. They are reproduced in Life magazine. And all of a sudden, these are no longer just missionary images. They are images that document military activities and atrocities in a global public perspective. So that shifts the, per- the frame. It shifts the perspective. Interestingly, at multiple parts in the journey of these images, Christian internationalism comes to, into play. The Reverend McGee, when he makes these images, he explicitly writes in his introduction to the films that he does not want these films to stir up a spirit of hatred against the Japanese. And he says this in this kind of Christian internationalist framework that he's not making propaganda to make people hate Japan. He wants to end the war. There's a pacifist tendency here, which is connected to Christian internationalism. And when these films are first made, one of the first things that happens is that a British missionary asks, can I take these films to Japan? Can I show them to Japanese Christians in an effort to have them expose the violence and brutality of the war and use their religious identity and their communal collective force to stop the war? And we know in hindsight that it does not happen. That does not work, but it's part of this internationalism. So that's part of the reception. And finally, i just want to give another example of audience and preservation. In some of these cases, um, these images and visual materials make these journeys around the world in very interesting ways. In this wartime uh, environment, Another missionary family who is interned um, in North China, first they're put under house arrest, and later on they're put in uh, the very famous Weixian uh, internment camp in North China. During their kind of house arrest period, they make a short movie because they have a movie camera and they have a role of color film. And what happens to this uh, color film? They decide, well, there's only one place in the world that can process color film, And that place is Rochester, New York, where Eastman Kodak has this processing plant. So after they make this short movie, which is just images of their kids and their friends and their Chinese colleagues, they somehow smuggle the film out. And that film goes across wartime China. It goes to Chongqing and it's put on an aircraft. It's transported over the Himalayas is put on a ship after that goes across the Atlantic and this is all in 1942 by the way during the war and somehow ends up at Eastman Kodak in Rochester New York where the film is developed it's a movie film and then no one is there to pick it up because there's no forwarding address and then by providence or coincidence once this missionary family is out of uh, internment and repatriated back to the United States the father of this family who is a medical missionary, he's a medical doctor, gets a job as the company physician at Eastman Kodak. And someone comes up to him and says, oh, is this your film? And then this family is reunited with this film and has traveled thousands of miles around the world to arrive you know, at this place where it's finally picked up by this family that also travels around the world during the war to get back to the United States. And what happens to this movie? It sits in the family's possession for decades and decades until by happenstance or by some kind of connection um, it comes to me and uh, we're able to investigate it and think about what it means for history. But um, I can speak certainly more about the preservation aspects later on, but um, these visual materials and these people make incredible journeys across the world and across this history.
2: I think one thing that's so amazing to read your book is all this, and you also call it historical contingency and somehow it's just so amazing that we can know the stories and it's really by your writing that we can read all the stories and sometimes reading all those stories especially your chapter four I feel wow what if there are so many what ifs there and then maybe they will not be at your desk if that what if doesn't happen but somehow they're all preserved and they become this so-called archive And then you have the access to them. And that's how you write your book. So maybe now let's come to another question about the archive. And I think that's very crucial for a historian like you. So what are your archives? And is there any interesting story besides the one you just shared with us about finding all those archives? And also, at the beginning of your book, you mentioned in the note to your reader about the companion website of this book hosted by the University of Michigan, which I quote, contains a wide range of rare primary sources, including color slides, film clips, and other digitized visual and textual materials, end quote. What is the importance of this kind of digital archive in your research? How do you envision the development of the digital archive?
1: Excellent questions. So where are my archives? Uh, for the most part, a good number of archives uh, behind this book, behind my research, are private collections. And these are really family collections. So at one point or many points, the materials and the devices that I just talked about were simply family images or institutional images or institutional devices um, that they belong to individuals. They belong to families. And even the stories I just shared were at one point simply family stories. It's part of a a child's memory or a, a person's life. And In finding them, it really was, again, happenstance. It was encounters with the children of missionaries or people who worked with these uh, materials before. And one by one, these people connected me to others that were either friends or colleagues um, who had once worked with them or known them. And one by one, finding these people. And of course, because my book covers Protestant and Catholic missionaries, of course, Catholic missionaries do not have children, Protestant missionaries do generally have families, there is this mix of family experience and institutional personal experience that is part of this work. So where are the archives? Um, family settings, um, institutional settings. There's an excellent archive uh, now at the uh, Boston College called the Ricci Institute for Chinese Western Cultural History. Um, that has an excellent archive of materials, also photographic materials. The Jesuit Archives and Research Center in St. Louis, Missouri, also holds a large number, a lot of them unexplored, I think, collection of uh, of materials, uh, films, photographs, and whatnot. Now, the companion website is currently still under construction, but mostly it will feature images that I was able to preserve from these families who have very generously allowed me to work with them. And there's a lot of trust involved in this. Um, But um, I hope to have um, those materials, as you mentioned, put up on the companion website, which I hope will be useful for teaching and research uh, down the road. Your question about what about the digital archive, the digital media, that's really good. For me, I really think this is part of how historians engage with material. It's part of it is accessibility. Uh, So, for example, how do we work with film if we can't see the film? How do we work with film if we don't have the technical expertise to handle this material and put it on a projector and watch it? Um, You have to digitize it. And if you can't digitize it, a lot of this material remains unseen and makes you wonder about how many other photographs, films, color slides are out there floating around or sitting in repositories or family attics and closets waiting to be seen because they're not accessible to people via digital media. The second thing is also resolution and the ability to freeze frame or stop a movie or zoom in on a photograph. And unless you again physically have that object in your hands and can do that, it's very hard to to do that from a distance. It's very hard to do that going to an archive. And now as we know during the pandemic, it's been increasingly difficult to gain access or physically go to where these materials are. So All of these things, I hope, will be addressed by um, digital media and a digital archive, accessibility, resolution, and um, the presence of these objects.
2: I definitely see that as like the future of at least part of historical research and all kinds of other researches related to the visual materials. And again, digital archive can be so important and crucial for us to do further research. Now, let's come back to your introduction. I actually was quite moved by it, uh, reading the whole story. I think you are an excellent storyteller about this story between Liu Ju and then Jesse May Hankey. And the photos are so ordinary. It's just a portrait photo of several people. But then somehow, they are all connected together through time and space by you. Because you tell the story and we know it as audience. And then through your storytelling, we know your friendship years back. And somehow they again connected with each other years after. So how do you see the function of this kind of personal and even emotional take in academic research such as history? Because it's a story, but it's such a moving story. But somehow research should be neutral, maybe, or more reserved, <laughs> somehow. So how do you see that kind of personal take, then?
1: Well, I think you give me too much credit. <laughs> and, uh, those stories were there before I found them. And, and before they were, I think I would say, privileged to be part of this uh, experience. And certainly for me, I, when I see and I come across these stories, it reminds me that human experience is wrapped up in the ways that images and cameras travel, how they connect to all of these complex emotions, emotions uh, uh, that are connected to memory, nostalgia, longing, and loss. And in that story, particularly, it's the images are ordinary, as you say, but the memories are special. And you, you wonder about how many other stories there are in which... People look at these images and they remember their friends or they remember people they've lost or spaces and communities that are no longer existent. And I think there's a part of this when we perhaps consider the question of old photographs, there's always this trying to revive or capture some kind of experience that is no longer there the French semiotician Roland Barthes uh, very famously said that every image is a has been, that something was there, that relationship was there, that place was there. Uh, It may not be there anymore, but we have a fragment of it. So I think for me, the function of the personal is to recover the fact that these kinds of materials were connected to real people. And connected to complex human emotions and emotions and memories that shift over time. They're reference. They are objects that connect to some kind of lived experience. So... I would say uh, to the question or the thought about neutrality and research, of course, uh, I feel like there is a moment and a time and place where one has to step back and look at the broader perspective and, and perhaps be detached from the emotions and the lived experience in these objects. It's what we do all the time. On the other hand, I feel like to stay in that mode erases or obscures the complexities of lived experience that are wrapped up in these sources that we work with. So you have to constantly move between this stepping back and seeing it from the big picture, but also standing there with the person in their shoes, sometimes in their tears and their struggles and their pain or their joy, and realizing that all of this is part of the fabric of history.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Yeah, that's definitely true. We didn't really talk about exactly what the story is. I wish listeners could go to the book and read it because it's just so moving. And then I have to say I was moved to tears when I finished the last paragraph of the introduction. And I'm certainly sure that audience, I mean, the readers who are reading your book will have the same kind of emotion you were talking about at that particular moment when you know that thing has kind of closed because of some deaths. But at the same time, because it's written in your book, it lives forever. And that really leads to our next question um, about all this engagement with the theories of photography. You were talking about Roland Barthes, of course, and there are other uh, scholars and also writers you were talking about in your book. For example, One of your first two quotes of the book is Susan Sontag's famous saying, all photographs are memento mori. If I may continue her writing, and you also quoted this in chapter five, it says, to take a photograph is to participate in another person's or things, mortality, vulnerability, mutability. Precisely by slicing out this moment and freezing it, all photographs Testify to time's relentless melt. I feel this is exactly what you are doing to save from this kind of time's relentless melt. So this phrase in Latin, memento mori, means remember that you have to die or you must die. It's also the title of your fifth chapter. But towards the end of this chapter, you reminded us of the significance of the antonym, which is memento vivary, remember that you must live. So my question is, after finishing your book, now looking back, how would you further explain that photography and also filmmaking are memento maori and memento vivary?
1: Great. So for me, I felt throughout working with this book uh, and the research that there, and I mentioned this earlier, that there's tension, right, between... These images freezing time, and that ties into Susan Zontag's thoughts about reminding us that we will die. That this image is of a place and a time and a person that we will never return to, and that we are moving on at some point. Um, this image will represent a loss. So that, that is part of the fabric of this book. At the same time, in working with the material, and I mentioned it also earlier, that images and image making preserve lived experience. That you look on that image, and you know you're not going back there. You know that this image and this person um, is frozen in time. But they were there. That there was a lived experience there. And I feel like the encouraging aspect of that flip side, memento vivere, that remember that you must live in relation to images reminding us of time passing away and going away is that it asks us not only to confront the past, but to consider the future and consider our present and how we might live or how the people in these stories live in relation to these images that freeze time. Because, of course, the people, the images, and these histories are always evolving. They're moving. They pass through space and time. They pass through different communities and different audiences and viewers and uh, image makers. So... It comes down to the question of what it means to live and belong in this world and how images and image making represent both sides of the equation.
2: As I'm thinking about this whole kind of must-die and must-live feature of the photography, I'm also thinking about this, again, going back to your idea of missionary modernity, how the missionaries' jobs have changed and also their destinies have changed along the first half of the 20th century. So would you like to give us a kind of overview of this kind of development of the mission of modernity from the beginning to kind of the end in the 1950s when People's Republic of China had its own, you said, more than Chinese Christianity. That is no longer the missionary modernity you were talking about at the kind of the huge
1: part of your book. Yeah, so it's an interesting trajectory. In a way, at least in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, when the missionaries are in China, um, they're seeing themselves as increasingly partners with the Chinese state, with Chinese communities, and with Chinese Christian indigenous development. So what does it mean to be a missionary there and work alongside instead of working over someone? In comparison to the earlier forms of missionary thoughts and ideology that you go to a place and you are essentially morally, culturally uh, superior to whoever is there. Now, it does not mean that the missionaries become these kind of secular types of individuals. They're still fully invested in belief, they're fully invested in building religious community, but doing so as partners. In institution building, and we can think about all sorts of universities in China, and and uh, hospitals and schools um, that were built or started as missionary enterprises and later became something bigger or different. But as you mentioned, history doesn't stop there. Uh, as the missionaries are experiencing first the upheavals of the Second Sino-Japanese War. After the war, there's a almost kind of reset. Missionaries and Chinese Christians are seeing the moment after 1945 as a moment of new opportunity. And they almost prefigure this idea of building a new China, you know, like uh, they're trying to rebuild some kind of new global development in China that is not the same kind of 1920s and 30s partnership with institutions. They're going to make this missionary enterprise even more globally connected. Uh, And there are all sorts of examples that I cover in my book about that. But history again does not stop there. 1949, um, regime change happens. And in a way, missionaries are then confronted with a Chinese state that has moved beyond them, that they're essentially left behind. And then in the 50s, they not only are left behind, but they become antagonists, they become the enemy. And there's no longer a way to work directly with the state. So the partnership then is dissolved. So what then do you do? You Leave, you go other places. Um, you go to other places in Asia or the world, Um, you take your missionary modernity elsewhere because there's a new China, literally, involved here. So I feel like that's the kind of trajectory that missionary modernity goes through over the course of the first half of the 20th century.
2: So what we just covered is really about Christianity, but I'm also curious about this particular religion's encounter with other religions in China. I think you mentioned some of this in your book, like the religious conferences that people from different religions encounter in a conference. So would you like to share with us some other stories if there's encounters of various religions in China in this particular historical period?
1: Sure. So I wish I covered this more in the book, but certainly it's tied into the question of what happens when missionaries arrive in China, they have their cameras, and they are unaware or not entirely sure how to make sense of this new world that they're entering. There's uh, this a great example of one of these missionaries that I do write about uh, in other contexts. He is doing his language school training in Beijing in about 1933, 1934, and he is making these trips to see different Buddhist temples in different parts of the city. And on one of these trips, he has his camera with him. He's taking pictures of different parts of this temple and practices there. And he's fascinated by these Buddhist structures and practices. And then he has a conversation with this Chinese Buddhist monk. And this missionary is probably, you know, he's not really fully fluent in Chinese yet. So he's struggling with the conversation. And then the Buddhist monk suddenly says something like, we have your God here uh, and we know about you. But the missionary is struck by the fact that he knows almost nothing about them, about this community. So there's a sense of trying to understand and figure out one's relationship to other religious practices that is part of the uh, enculturation experience. Another response, and you mentioned this in your question about the religious conference that's happening, this is during the Second Sino-Japanese War, and at this moment in North China, the Japanese occupation authorities bring in different religious leaders, Muslim, Taoist, Buddhist, Christian, both Protestant and Catholic, to figure out how to set up basically a religious affairs bureau as part of their pacification process, the Japanese occupation process. And I'm seeing this through the eyes of a American Presbyterian Protestant missionary who is there watching the proceedings. He has been invited. And he, again, is kind of unsure of what to make of these other religious leaders. And at one point, they're all asked to stand up and to bow to the Japanese flag And he sees that these other leaders do bow, and he and the Catholic missionary, who he also doesn't know very well um, because they're different, Protestant and Catholic, um, they don't bow. So, in a sense, he's not trying to discount these other religions and other religious practices, but he has the sense almost that we are resisting the Japanese in a way that is different from how you might be resisting the Japanese. So it's a question, really, of differences not only in religion, but also in collaboration, or what one does in relation to the Japanese occupation. But overall, it's a great question, and I wish I had more uh, really to to consider um, perhaps in future work. And for those of you listening, I hope you might have other perspectives and questions uh, in relation to this. But really, it's a question of how one relates one's perspective on religious community building and institution building while living among other communities that are seeing the world in a different religious perspective.
2: Since your book covers Protestant and Catholic missionaries, could you give us an example in your book about Protestant image and Catholic image?
1: Excellent question. So I would say that what comes to mind for me, of course, there's all of these other nuances in the differences between Protestant groups and Catholic groups. For me, the comparison, one example, is how the churches look. And at different parts of this book, I talk about what people are doing in these churches. And one example that comes to mind uh, of a Protestant church is of this image of this interior of a church. And there's these massive words in the front on the wall of this church, which everyone has to see every day. And they are related to these Protestants' ideas about worshipping without seeing objects. Worshipping in connecting yourself with God through scripture, through the Bible. And the words on the wall there, a couple of them uh, are describing um, these religious creeds, the Apostles' Creed. Um, There's this massive xing wang ai, you know, faith, hope, and love in these massive characters on this wall. And I actually read the image differently because it's actually uh, related to a memorial service, which you can see in uh, the first chapter of this book. But that, to me, represents kind of how the Protestants are approaching religious space in this scripture-based image. On the other hand, another uh, Catholic church um, in Hunan, um, we've got these Catholic photographers making images of their church. And this is focused on the proper religious objects. The altar has to be decorated in a certain way. There are images of saints and religious figures, images of Christ, um, of Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary. And this, for me, represents how Catholic photographers are trying to, to represent Proper liturgy or proper religious belonging in a space that is centered more physically on objects. But what is part of this image, again, you can't see it, but it's in my mind, is that the altar is decorated in a hybrid style. There are Chinese paintings on this altar. The altar itself is carved with these decorations of flowers and birds in it's almost like Guohua type of like atmosphere and for me that says this is a hybrid project this is not just exporting an altar from America to China, this is a Chinese Catholic space that is based on these specific hybrid objects.
2: I really agree with that hybrid style. I saw some of the pictures in your book and I see you have this church in a very Chinese setting. The whole architecture is so Chinese and it's wooden and there are all kinds of uh, decorations there which you can see in a very traditional Chinese building. But then it's a church. So yeah, that's very fascinating. The next question is so... I think... At least from my experience of making podcasts and also listening to podcasts, we all ask this question now because we are still in the pandemic. I feel your discussion of photos, visibility and invisibility, and also living chases are very crucial in this whole discussion. And you also touch upon pandemic in your acknowledgement. So I'm wondering, what would you like to leave in this podcast as a trace of sound for the you in the future, and also the audience in the future?
1: That is a deep question, uh, and I'm very glad you asked it. I feel, and we all feel, right, that there is so much uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen next. We've been through all of these ups and downs uh, in the pandemic. Of course, we have moments of, I guess, joy or or new perspective. And we also have moments of great darkness and, and challenges and difficulties. So I think what I would leave behind is to ask what binds us, what connects us. The lesson that my book and the research has taught me is that in a way it's the images and thinking about um, images and image making in the world. And we think about these on a daily basis even though we may not consider it as critically as perhaps uh, what happens in this book. In that images of family, friends, colleagues and communities, they bind us today. They connect us today. Viewers, uh, listeners um, of this podcast can't see it, but I am seeing you uh, on this screen. And we are mediated by visual devices, our computers, our phones, different kinds of cameras. Our friends and colleagues and communities are brought together by devices every single day because of the conditions of the pandemic. So I think if I were to leave a question then for our listeners, it is for you to think about your presence in the fabric of history and what your images and identities do in making sense of the world. So kind of an open question for you all. And what will you leave behind? What kinds of images and memories and stories will you leave behind for the future in that kind of you know, question that we asked earlier? And what are you seeing and making sense of now that frames your experience.
2: Yeah, that's so true. Actually, what you said just now reminded me of the idea you mentioned in your epilogue, the latent images, and you said existing at certain points in time but now lying beneath larger historical narratives that flatten the granularities of the experiences and visions involved. And I think what you book is doing is to really to uncover this kind of quote unquote little things in the grand narrative. And that's again so important. And that's why I as a literary scholar find your historical project so fascinating because I think that's exactly what histories should do now. And I wish there are more people who are doing that. And somehow you let me see missionaries in a way that's so humane. <laughs> I don't know if this particular argument makes sense or not, but now I see a very close connection with all those missionaries who are taking pictures, who are making films, just out of their daily life. But maybe this daily life, worse daily, in their time, but it can be kind of apical in our time. And now, if listeners still remember, at the beginning of the talk, I said, I actually met Dr. He in a conference. And you actually bring in Japan in your discussion of this kind of Sino-U.S. encounters of missionaries. So I'm not sure if that's your next project, but I'm wondering what your next project will
1: be. Uh, I wish it were my next project, but it currently is not. It's just a fragment of materials that I uh, had uncovered during this book that I wanted to to speak on a little bit. But my my two next projects, uh, one is a co-authored book currently entitled Time Exposures. So I'll have to continue the photographic puns somehow. And this book is going to be on Catholic photography and the evolution of modern China. So specifically Catholic photography, uh, which I am co-authoring with Anthony Clark uh, at Whitworth University. And my next monograph is tentatively also entitled Bamboo Wireless, uh, Mediating the Cold War in Asia. And this will be, I hope, about the role of public and private media in constructing Cold War perceptions of social change, anti-communism, and peripheries uh, in Taiwan and other parts of East Asia.
2: Wow, I like those two titles, like Time Exposures and then Bamboo Wallets. Like this one is also very interesting, Developing Mission. It makes people wonder what you really want to talk about. And then it's also very attractive as a title. So I really look forward to your future projects and I wish to read more of your books. So again, thank you so much for coming to our program. And I really want to end this whole talk with another little monologue. Because again, I am a fan of uh, photography and I actually read a lot of historiography of photography in the world. And one of the most prestigious photographers, Henry Cartier Bresson, has said, To me, photography is the simultaneous recognition in a fraction of a second or the significance of an event, as well as a price, precise organization of forms which give that event its proper expression. In his mind, Photography is all about catching the decisive moment. While Robert Capa may be the exemplary photographer on, based on his definition, your writing brings the image taken by like McGee and Winfield and the Hanke family and all others to the forefront. So in this sense, you as a scholar and writer is also creating a decisive moment in history. I think that will end today's talks. Thank you again for coming to New Books
1: Network. Thank you for having me.